Thank you for listening to another episode of Nashville Anthems, dissecting 80s and 90s country music. I'm your host, Melton McMainerberry, and you were played in by the sounds of the Lost Cotton Boys today. Check them out at a honky-tonk near you. Actually, maybe you can get them to do a house show. You would just have to get the decor right. And to do that, you'll only need to follow the plan of this episode's victim, David Frizzell's 1982 novelty, maybe, hit... I'm going to hire a wino to decorate our home. So, if you haven't already, I invite you to pause me, pull up your favorite music player, and ask it to play the song a few times. And as you do it, ask yourself the question, what is the tone of this song? Okay, hopefully you've drunk this song and the question of tone down thoroughly. So now, let's get into it. First off, as always, we want to give credit where credit is due. I'm going to hire a wino to decorate our home. Yes, that's the title. There are no parentheses in there or anything inviting you to shorten it. I'm going to hire a wino to decorate our home was recorded and released by David Frizzell as part of his 1982 album, The Family's Fine, But This One's All Mine. And it went to number one on the country charts that year. Now, I think it's fair to say that David Frizzell is not exactly a household name. He had his 15 minutes in the early 80s, but nothing like the staying power of anyone else we've covered so far on this podcast. In case you were wondering, due to the last name, suspicion confirmed. David Frizzell was, in fact, undisputed country legend Lefty Frizzell's brother. And honestly, maybe that's really more his claim to fame than this song is. But speaking of credits that are more famous for their relationship to someone or something else, the songwriter on I'm Gonna Hire a Wino to Decorate Our Home was David Blackwell. And by far, David Blackwell is best known as co-writer of, arguably, the biggest song this podcast would ever cover, and that's Garth Brooks's Friends in Low Places. Now, that's not just trivia. Knowing that fact may help us unpack exactly what is going on in I'm Gonna Hire a Wino to Decorate Our Home, which I'm going to argue is not necessarily readily obvious. But first, let's round out the credits. I'm Gonna Hire a Wino. Eh, I'm just gonna go ahead and shorten it anyway. I'm Gonna Hire a Wino's producers were Snuff Garrett and Steve Dorf. Okay, now, There's really only one key feature that I'm going to talk about regarding I'm going to hire a wino. And I mentioned it early with that question I asked you to chew on. That key feature is what I'm going to call this song's ambiguous tone. Now, clearly this song has a lot of shared DNA with a couple of songs we previously covered, Long Neck Bottle and Neon Moon. Two other songs about getting wasted in a cheap bar that have very different tones. So, if I'm Gonna Hire a Wino shares a lot of themes with those two songs, which of the song's tones does it have? Are we hearing the version of the situation by Long Neck Bottle's protagonist's girl at home who loves him? Or are we hearing the home-based prelude to the first of many lonely nights under the neon moon? And, to be fair, 
It doesn't have to be either of those, right? It could be any shade of nuance in between. But where exactly does it land? I argue that it's not clear, and that fact is really the defining feature of the song for me. Because, honestly, it's fairly unremarkable musically, I think. It may be remarkable for being unremarkable. (laughs) Why does it feel like this thin line comes up for us a lot on this podcast? What what I mean is, it's honky-tonk, but it's a bit too on the nose. It's like Frizzell, or whoever the arranger was, looked up the recipe, grabbed every ingredient, and baked himself a big honky-tonk pie. All the elements are there. Take a cup of three-chord 4-4 swing with a heaping tablespoon of backbeat, a dash of barroom piano, a couple tablespoons of fiddle and pedal steel guitar, and bake inside a barroom theme for four minutes at 325. I didn't need to acknowledge the key changes, though, because... They keep the song from getting kind of too bogged down and too repetitive, but also because the key changes, and there are three of them, ensure that we have three songs in a row on this podcast that are, in whole or in part, in the key of, you guessed it, F-sharp. The same key that two episodes ago I made it a point to say is a highly unusual key for a country song. So, there's that. But there is a lack of nuance here in this song's musical presentation that's either sad or brilliant, fittingly, for this song's ambiguous tone. Likewise for David Frizzell's vocals. Milton's wife and I had a good conversation about this song, and she said Frizzell isn't exactly singing it depressed and isn't exactly singing the song happy either. But really, he's singing it like he's reading the news. It lacked charm, to use her word. She said, I'm gone to hire a wine to decorate our home. And I hear what she's saying, right? Put this in George Jones's voice and you'd have the definitive interpretation, whatever interpretation that may be. You certainly wouldn't be able to call it charmless. And George Jones is an apt comparison because you can hear Frizzell kind of channeling George Jones in his delivery or trying to. I mean, To be fair here, no one is going to stand up to be vocally compared to George Jones, but at the same time, Frizzell's drawly delivery really invites the comparison. Another comparison his delivery invites is Hank Williams. Can't you hear it? With Williams, I think there's no doubt that what you'd hear is the downtrodden alcoholic feeling helpless to save his doomed marriage, wallowing in the consequences of the pain he caused. I'm gonna keep drinking till I can't move a toe. It's the neon moon version. The neon moon that just went behind a cloud. Jones, you could hear either way. It could as easily be Long Neck Bottle as Neon Moon or any nuanced tone in between, but it would have a tone and you would feel it. If drinking don't kill me, her memory will. Speaking of putting the song in other people's voices, what about Garth Brooks? Remember that this song's songwriter also co-wrote Friends in Low Places, a song with a pretty clear middle finger attitude from the barfly protagonist to his displaced significant other. Well, I'll be as high as that ivory tower 
So what might the specific tone of Friends in Low Places tell us about the tone of I'm going to hire a wino to decorate our home? Well, not so fast. If it tells us anything, it may just be that ambiguity of tone is something Dwayne Blackwell is good at. In the sense that the music and lyrics he wrote in these two songs are up for interpretation, either by the singer, by the listener, or both. What are you talking about, Melton? Didn't you just say Garth Brooks leaves no room for doubt about the speaker's attitude and friends in low places? Well, that's true, but, and not to scoop ourselves too much here because we'll get to dive deep into this comparison when we actually get to friends in low places, but many of you may not know that you could find another version of friends in low places as an album cut on the album Too Cold at Home, which is a great country album in its own right, by none other than Mark Chestnut. So, No Fences and Too Cold at Home came out right about the same time, so in all likelihood, neither singer had heard the other's version before cutting his own. So you have two, if you will, fresh takes on the song. And I encourage you to give Chestnuts a listen if you haven't heard it before, because while it's not like the two versions are drastically different, you'll hear a lot more wine, W-H-I-N-E, in Chestnuts' version, and probably more wine, W-I-N-E, in Garth Brooks's, for that matter. I'll be as high as that ivory tower that you're living in. Where Brooks sounds like a slightly inebriated, self-satisfied man suggesting which end of him his lady can kiss, Chestnut sounds more downtrodden, like he's trying to stand up for himself, but coming up short. He sounds a little pathetic, where Brooks sounds empowered. In fact, it sounds like Otis Redding's original version of Respect, if you've ever heard it. It's a completely different tone from Aretha Franklin's. He's begging for respect while Franklin is demanding it. Something similar going on here in the difference between Chestnut's and Brooks' version of Friends in Low Places. So, we're seeing that the singer's interpretation can mean as much or more to the tone of a song like this than the words and music the composer puts on paper do, at least for these two Dwayne Blackwell compositions. Other times it wouldn't be so open for interpretation, right? Take Brad Paisley's I'm Gonna Miss Her or Toby Keith's How Do You Like Me Now. Hard to hear those being interpreted as sincere, right? Or Back to Neon Moon. No way to sing that one ironically that I can think of. But the very ambiguity of David Frizzell's recording of I'm Gonna Hire a Wino to Decorate Our Home, I argue, suggests that the composition itself had more of that it-is-what-you-make-of-it quality, like Friends in Low Places evidently had. And we're back to my comment earlier about Frizzell's matter-of-fact delivery. Did he brilliantly punt the burden of interpretation from himself as the singer to us as the listener? And that's one reason the song was such a hit? Or did he just read the lines on the page like reading the news and it happened to come out that way? I guess we'll never know. And I guess it really doesn't necessarily matter. The song we have is the song we're invited to interpret. But wait a minute. I said that the comment about Frizzell's vocals sounding like he's reading the news was my own. But in fact, when I stated it earlier, it wasn't my comment, but Melton's wife's. But she's not here. So all you have is my version of what she said. There are some layers of interpretation going on here, aren't there? In this podcast episode and in the song it covers. Because the singer's wife is speaking 
through most of the song, right? There would be quotation marks around most of the content of the song because the singer is quoting her. But that's just it. We're not hearing what she said. We're hearing his version of what she said. Now, that adds a whole other element to what's going on here, right, in terms of tone, because consider the source. This whole exchange, if you can call it that, happened while he was literally falling over drunk per the song's introduction. So, how reliable is his retelling of this exchange, and how clear would his understanding of his wife's intent be? Think about the audience, too. To whom is he telling this story? Any chance he's right back at the bar spinning tall tales to his barfly buddies? And to that point, is this story even true? And why is he telling it? Is he looking for advice because he doesn't know how to respond lovingly to this message from his wife? Okay, that doesn't sound very likely, I admit. So on the other hand, is he looking for sympathy because he has a nagging wife at home that's driving him nuts? As you can see, I've got far more questions than answers about this song, but those are all really just the lead-up, sub-questions, if you will, to the ultimate question, which is, what is her tone? Melton's wife said she couldn't tell if she was sad or annoyed. Neither can I. Is she strong here or is she weak? Think about the line of the intro, the first thing she says to him. You're not going to do this anymore. That could be a command that's expected to be submissively obeyed, right? Or it could be a cry of desperation, like, I'm out of reasonable ideas, so here comes an unreasonable one. Because there is absurdity in this song at its heart, right? Obviously, she's not really going to turn their home into a bar. She's exaggerating to make a point, and the point feels something like, your behavior has gotten so ridiculous that I'm being forced into this ridiculous response. So, in this ridiculous response, is she mocking him? A couple of lines of evidence in support of that theory. She says, I'll always keep in stock those soft aluminum cans, and when you're feeling macho, you can crush them like a man. Soft. She went out of her way to note that the aluminum cans were, in fact, easy to crush, such that using them to make himself feel strong is pretty pathetic. There's also the verse that says, Then you can slap my bottom every time you tell a joke. Just as long as you keep tipping well, I'll laugh until you're broke. So he's slapping her butt, but she's laughing all the way to the bank while taking his money. Who is exploiting whom here? But on the other hand, look at lyrics like in the chorus where she says she's doing this not so that he'll feel ashamed of his behavior, but so that he'll feel what? More at ease here. That sounds pretty genuine, right? If not, that's some sarcasm colder than the beer she promised to keep on tap. And look at the line before the one about butt slapping. She promises to wear skimpy clothes for him, pretty unironically, as best as I can tell. Hmm. So, is this Aretha Franklin demanding respect when her man comes home, or is this Otis Redding begging her for it when he does? Is this another good-loving woman in love with a good-timing man, or are her boots made for walking? Is she going to stand by her man, or does he 
just need to be reminded not to come home a-drinkin' with lovin' on his mind. R.I.P. Loretta Lynn. I give up. I don't know. If you do, go ahead and write me at meltonmcmainerberry at gmail.com or search for Nashville Anthems on Instagram and drop me a line. I'm interested in what you think about all this. But I'm also happy to leave the ultimate tone of I'm going to hire a wino to decorate our home a mystery and file the fact that it is a mystery away as a defining feature of this song and thus another lick closer to the Tootsie Roll center of the Tootsie Pop that is 80s and 90s country music. So that's where I'm going to settle up the tab on this song and get ready to move on to the next. To that end, I'm going to pull up Satellite Radio's 80s and 90s country station right now and see what's playing. The song is one we've covered before and, in fact, referenced a lot in this very episode. It's Brooks and Dunn's Neon Moon. We won't go back to that well again, so I will wait this one out and catch up back with you in just a minute. Okay, it's finishing up. All right, we have our new song. It's going to be Foster and Lloyd, Crazy Over You. I look forward to getting into that one in two weeks with you. In the meantime, as I said, you can write me, find me on Instagram. Thanks so much for listening. I gotta go. I got some home decorating to do. 